Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, the show dedicated to the private investor, and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. We want to show you how to cross the divide from residential investing over to commercial property investing. Through interviews, tips and lessons learned, we share experiences of investing and give you the inspiration, knowledge and confidence to enjoy this great cash flowing strategy. So let's get started. Welcome to episode 150 of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. Wow, this feels more of a milestone than when we reached 100. For me, 100 is often a target for some people, which could lead to a bit of drudgery just to get there. But 150 is a way mark and far more important number for me. And I genuinely love doing this podcast. Apart from anything else, I get to speak to some amazing people, such as today's guest. I'm going to come on to that in a second. I don't know how many episodes we would do when we started out. And I didn't bother spending much time worrying about that either. The key, as with most things in life, was just to get started. We could figure the rest out later. But I do remember, as we became a bit more deliberate about the podcast, drawing up a list of people that I would really like to have on the show. And way back, at least a year ago, in the early days of that, I set my mind that if we could, the guest for this special show was going to be none other than Bob Keeler. Now, he didn't know that at the time. And obviously, somehow, I had to convince him to come onto the show. And some of our listeners will be really excited to hear that we did manage to record an episode with Bob, which I'm going to introduce to you in a second. And other listeners who aren't in the same networks may never have heard of him, which I'm sure he won't be embarrassed about. But I can assure you, by the end of this episode, you will be searching him up on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can thank me for that later. So despite all of his success, Bob is always generous with his time and spirit. I found he's always authentic and genuinely interested in helping entrepreneurs and those less well-off in society. And I'm pleased to say that I can share him with you now on the 150th episode, talking about one of his favourite topics, storytelling and the art of persuasion. And just to give you some context here, he has led a business of over 50,000 employees, which rather puts my business organisation of up to 50 into, into context. And a few years ago... Bob spotted an amazing hidden opportunity, but he had no money, no time to raise the money, and a lot of people to convince that it was a good idea. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Well, we've all been there. But the added complexity for him was the scale. Now, I'm not going to spoil the story, but suffice to say, if you're trying to raise money for some commercial projects right now, this episode is really going to help. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast. Bob Keeler is joining us today. All hail Bob Keeler. <laughs> Special oh, episode, 150th <laughs> episode. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here, Jenny. Glad to help. It's fantastic. Um, Bob, you have, uh, just to give some context for people, well over 150,000 followers on LinkedIn, TEDx talk under your belt, a large collection of business awards. You've been chairman of Scottish Enterprise, and leader of a business with tens of thousands of employees. You've educated thousands, lots and lots of people around the world. I know from listening to some of your um, talks before, many of the different interesting places you've had conversations and delivered some really impactful talks. And you've been ever so helpful with myself and Callum in our business accelerator in the past. So I've been waiting, waiting for the right moment to bring you on the show, and I'm so pleased you've joined us. Um, maybe you could just give people an indication of what you're up to these days. 
I help people, Jerry. I, I help people to grow whatever they're trying to grow. I spend a lot of time working with charities, social enterprises, early stage entrepreneurs and ambitious medium sized organizations. Um, I do it all unpaid. Uh, I provide most of the services at no fee to the recipient. Some of the bigger companies that are earning a profit, I charge them just to cover any overhead costs I've got. But I don't, I don't pay myself anything at all. And I don't take anything out of the business as such, which gives me a great deal of freedom and honesty in that nobody can accuse me of being in it for the money. So I can be as brutally honest with feedback as I choose to be. Um, <laughs> And it, but it's it's almost a, a a desire to pay back for all the support that I got over the years from people, and also to instill in others a pay forward that says if I help you on your journey, when you can, maybe you'll help others on their journey as well. So it's kind of trying to get that um, that that spinning flywheel turning over that says, look, we're all here to help each other ultimately. Um, and if I can help you just now, then in five years' time, maybe you can reach out and help the next early-stage entrepreneur that's coming through to try and, and grow a business. So that, that's what I do, and, and, and I, I, I work across a range of different core subjects from leadership to growth to uh, communication to uh, culture and values and various other other areas. Yeah. Well, over the years, because um, I've known you for a while now, and and. It's been fantastic to watch things that you've been up to and to listen to the different talks that you've delivered. And the three key areas I think you've tried to teach me and others, but I, I feel you're trying to teach me is storytelling, core values, and, and leadership. And yeah. these are the, the, the things that you've pulled out of your experiences. And I'd love to talk about all of them, but we're going to have to focus in, right? Because storytelling, by its very nature, could be a long podcast, right? Yeah, it could be. <laughs> that's the one I really want to focus in on because yeah. a lot of our listeners need to raise private money. Yeah. And they're often really just too scared to get started with that. They, they, they yeah. see it as a possibility. In fact, some don't see it as a possibility because they just feel so scared. But with your um, experiences, I, I just thought it would be great for you to share some of your thoughts and experiences of storytelling, and the art of persuasion. Yeah. And, and as I said, I've always wanted to bring a podcast for this. It, it might be in the, the context of raising money. Let's start with a story, okay? Yeah. Um, it would only be right. So can you tell us the time when you raised a few dollars yeah. and organized a management buyout of PSA? Right. Okay. So so let, 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 let me give you the precursor story, which would yes. be the, the, the prequel to the Star Wars movies. So I, I took over as the managing director of a, a, a small part of a large business. And it was a large American corporation. And I was asked to attend um, a strategy session with my other departmental leads. I was told, you know, you need to come along and you need to present uh, in this format. You need to present these numbers and this market share and, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, this feels really, really dry and really, really desperately uninteresting. So when I got there, I chose not to do that. I effectively uh, sabotaged the process and I stood up and presented a much simpler version because I knew at the time that there was a perception that the business that I was in charge of wasn't doing particularly well. And so rather than disavow people of that, I, I put up a picture of a rowing boat full of water and said, that's my business. And instead of tell, standing here and telling you what lovely exotic islands we plan to sail to, I'd quite like to concentrate on getting the water out of the boat and fixing the holes in the bottom. So that's my strategy. And after, and after, and after two days of continuous presentations, the boss of that whole part of this organization, a guy's name, a guy from New Jersey whose name was Lou Pooker, he said, uh, these are the worst two days of presentations I've ever seen in my career. He says, there is only one that I will remember, and that's the one with the boat in it. <laughs> and I thought it was really fascinating because then my, my colleagues accused me of cheating. And I did point out that we were no longer at school and that we were all adults and they could have chosen to do exactly the same thing, but they decided not to. Uh, it was, and I was prepared to take that risk, but it, it, it set a seed for me that the business that I was operating actually wasn't doing nearly as badly as the perception was. And it was partly because in that organization, they were measuring the quality of businesses based on gross margin. 
the business I was running was a low margin business, but it was a, a reasonable return on the capital because it was a low capital intensity business and it was a low risk business. So I thought they're measuring this the wrong way. And that gave me the kind of initial thing. Well, well actually, if they don't value this, maybe I should buy it. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, right, I'm going to buy this business. There's a couple of little problems. Just a couple of little tiny little problems. I've got no money. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I don't know how I'll raise the money. I don't know how much money I'll need to raise. I don't know where I'll get that money from. But I need to find a way of capturing the essence of why this would be a good investment for somebody to come along and give me some money. So I, I worked through various options, uh, but, but ultimately it came down to the fact that I was going to be having, having to persuade people who didn't know me, who didn't know the industry, who didn't know the company, that they should put some faith in, in me and my team to be able to take this business and produce a great return for them. So the scene, I'm picturing going into a room full of bankers, a room full of, of lawyers and bankers sitting there who didn't know me at all. And I walked in and I, I asked them what was the biggest living thing from the world, species from plants and animals. And they clearly thought I'd gone into the wrong room. And I said, go on, humor me on this. And of course, somebody said a blue whale, as you would imagine. I said, well, well, that's a great answer, but it's not the right answer. Plants and animals. All oh, right, a tree. I said, yeah, which tree? I said, the, the sequoia, the giant redwood. I said, absolutely, the, the Canadian giant redwood. So I said, now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to close your eyes and picture yourself walking through a glade of giant redwood trees. It's the middle of the afternoon, it's it's autumn, it's the northwest coast of, of America. Um, you can see the sun, dappled shadows on the floor in front of you. You can feel the soft pine beneath your feet. You can smell that fresh pine smell and you can hear birds singing in the distance. And I want you to imagine you walk behind a particularly large specimen and between two large trees, there's a small Scots pine growing and I want you to imagine you go across to the Scots pine that you carefully dig it up and you extract the roots and you walk a few hundred meters to a clearing and you put it down what's the difference well where it was before it was competing if you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap but you just don't know how to do it then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. moisture with the big trees round about it. It was competing for sunlight and it was competing for nutrients. Now we put it in a space, we put it, put it, put the soil down round about it, we give it a drink and we let it go and what happens now it grows more quickly. That's the business plan. And they got it. Now I backed it up by saying and we can deliver that business plan and here's all the, the facts and figures and here's all the, the, the you know, the, the, the factors to do with business. So I didn't get away with just telling the story, but it was the story that got them on board to say, so this is simply about giving a business the space to grow. And you've got the right team, you've got a good customer base, you've got a market that you can see a future expansion capacity. Um, so you should be able to do this. And we said, yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. And on the basis of that, we borrowed $280 million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Then what we didn't know was that there was a, a, a recession around the corner, there was a credit crunch around the corner, there was a global financial crisis just on the horizon. So our plan, which was to go ahead and do that, had to be changed and modified a few times. But ultimately, because we were able to tell, keep telling stories about the quality of what we can do and how we deliver our business, customers kept faith in us and customers gave us return business. We attracted new customers to the business. So we were able to grow revenues. Um, and as we grew revenues, we were able to control costs that our margins increased as well as we did this. But we also were able to create a culture for people that attracted them to come and join us and want to stay with us. So whilst other people were fighting for talent and having to you know, bid for people to come and join their organization, we were able to attract people on the basis they wanted to work with us. The upshot of all of that was exactly five years later, having bought the business for a multiple of about five times the EBITDA in the business, not only did we double the size of the business, we doubled the value of the business because we sold it for a 10 times multiple for a billion dollars in 2011. That's it. It's, you, you started talking there about some other components, leadership. Um, core values, and I, and I really want to come back to those. It might be worth you up in another episode, but yeah, there's some real value in there. I, I just want to ask this question just to give people a little more context. I mean, the, the financial numbers are amazing, right? Mm. But how many lives were involved in that? How many people worked in that business? When I first took the business over, I had 6,000 people in the business. By the time I'd sold it, I had 9,000 in the business. That's just so so part, part of me was taking 6,000 people with me on a journey. And how do you do that? Uh, especially when you can't tell them about it until it's just the day before it happens. Yeah. Um, and therefore having to get people to come along with me and therefore persuade them not to jump ship, persuade them to stay and give it their effort. Uh, I didn't have the financial resources to bribe them to stay in any way or to incentivize them. So I had to convince them that this was going to be an adventure and it was going to be uh, an adventure worth being part in. So a lot of that came back from sharing with people continuously how we were doing and how we were doing it in a way that people would want to know about it. And that was one of the key uses of storytelling in the business was to to convey what we're doing in a way that people found easy to consume and easy to remember. Yeah. And, and, and I would use the phrase business storytelling, Jerry, rather than just storytelling, because yeah. otherwise it sounds like making stuff up for your yeah. marketing department. Everything we're talking about is based on true events. But the secret, I think, for us was don't just share bland anecdotes. Find the drama, find the intrigue, find the surprise in what people are doing and share that in the same way that Pixar do in a way that people are saying, okay, so what happened next? Yeah. What happened after that? And tell them it in the form of a story, even though it's based on true events, so that people go, that's a great story. I didn't know that happened. I didn't know we had people like that in our organization. And as a result of that, it built up this momentum again of people thinking, this is great. Every single week, we're getting different stories some of them in person, some of them in videos, some of them on a, a blog. Um, but every time we get that, we're getting evidence that this is different. We're getting evidence that this is a better and different approach. Okay, let's delve into it then. So you, you gave us a great story there. Yeah. And you went through your process, which I'm, I'm familiar with. So could you maybe just talk through what are the key components right, to so, make that effective story or, or, or pitch yeah, so there's two things here. I mean, a, a pitch is a presentation of some sort to persuade somebody. Yes. And it can be uh, it can be in writing, it can be in person, it can be a presentation, whatever. But but pitch implies persuasion. So there are two elements to this. The, 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 the first thing, we'll come back to the, the story is a component of the pitch. Yes. The two are not synonymous. So if we think about the pitch is something that you put a story inside as part of a pitch. When it comes back to pitching, I was always amazed that the way I would see people pitching their services to me or pitching their products to me. And I would say, well, actually, I don't really understand why I would say yes to you. Because all you're saying is you've got lots of awards. Um, you've got some people that are in jobs. Um, you've got lots of empty sales phrases about being a great company and about being a game changer and about being a disruptor and all the other stuff that everybody's saying at the same time. 
but I don't see some of the key things that I would really want to know about why should I trust what you're saying? Where's the evidence to support what you're saying? Uh, why would it be a low risk option for me to, to deal with you? What would the effort be for me to, to change to you? And why would I choose you ahead of somebody else who's already providing a reasonable service at a reasonable rate? So none of the key elements were there. So I began to dive into the whole idea of the psychology of persuasion uh, and read multiple papers, um, published papers, various books, etc., uh, and ended up realizing that for, for pitching, there are a number of kind of key questions that we need to address when we're pitching. Uh, and some of these are primary questions that if you're the pitcher, you can address them. But some of them are to do with the context of the competitive landscape or the choices available to the who's ever making the decision. And and some of these you can influence, but you can't necessarily dictate because they may still have somebody who can do a job quicker than you can or at a lower cost than you can. So, you know, quite rightly, they might say, well, we're going to go that way rather than with you. But some of these questions are, are pretty dead easy ones. You know, I, I want to know that you know what you're talking about, but I don't need your life story and your CV. You know, I want to know what's in it for me, but not in terms of generalities. So don't tell me that you'll add value because I'm assuming that already. Don't tell me that you can improve my business because you wouldn't be here if I didn't think you could. Tell me exactly what you can do for me. Show me that the benefits are specific. Show me that they're sustainable and show me that they're scalable. And if you can do these things, I'm beginning to get interested in you. Then give me some evidence to show me you've done it for somebody else. Yeah. And be clear about what you're asking for. So don't leave the pitch thinking, well, that went well. What did you ask for? Nothing. At least have some concept of what you're going to be asking for. And then the other elements of persuasion, people need to know that they can get along with you. So there's no point going in there and being all um, aggressive or pushy or, or confrontational because it doesn't matter how good your pitch is, you, you're not going to win the business if people think they couldn't work with you. Uh, and also pitch to the right people. There's no point in pitching to people who don't buy the kind of stuff that you're selling. Uh, either a matter of policy or principle. So be careful about who you pitch to and be very selective about what you pitch, where and when. So all of these considerations end up being a whole bunch of questions that boil back down into a structure for a pitch that's got some basic elements. And when I look at it, there's six primary and six secondary questions typically that we look for. And when we look at other people's pitches, we sometimes see out of the 12, maybe they'll get two or three. So what we are often helping them is make your message clearer and fill in the gaps. Because if you can fill in the gaps and make your message clearer, it still means you might not win the business, but it won't be because you didn't cover essential questions that the audience might be asking themselves. So that's, that's the pitch. Yeah. So back to PSA, yeah. your, your overall presentation pitch was effectively to raise money, which is what a lot of yeah, our our, our um, listeners want to do as well. Yeah, and was there was that a straightforward money in money out? Was there equity share? How, how did that kind of yeah, yeah. pan out? So the, the, it was a really um, heavily leveraged equity structure. So out of the two hundred eighty million, we effectively borrowed an extra twenty odd million to fund the deal, to fund the transaction. So we ended up with a, a, a an opening bank balance of three hundred and five million dollars. Yeah. And of that, five million was equity, and three hundred was debt. Yeah. So the shareholders in the business, their shareholding was worth. A nominal five million on entry, but in reality, because of interests happening, etc., the equity was worth nothing at the start, really. Yeah. From that three hundred five million of equity, the lenders uh, took sixty percent of that, so they had they had uh, three out of the five million, they had three million, and the management had two million, of which I had the majority of that that share, and I did that by borrowing, raising money mortgaging houses, cashing in pension plans, whatever, pulling it together so that I could put my stake in there and say that's my input to this bet. This so, that, so so just as a side, it's really important to the bit I'm getting from that is although it sounded simple, obviously incredibly big numbers. Yeah. Actually there was a lot of nuances there to make a lot of nuances. work. Yeah. Um you gotta you gotta be creative to to build that structure. Yeah. 
But when you were going back to the actual story and the pitch, um, you were bringing them with you on this journey. Yeah. This wasn't just a straightforward low, as it were. There, there was an exit. So, so you really had to obviously show them that you were you were good to 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 very to look after their money very well. Yeah. Um, but also to deliver on this this plan, this replanting of this tree, yeah. and that that the market was there, the structure was there. So, I mean, how long did that actual process take? Because I appreciate there was the initial right. This is we've got the right people in the right rooms. You yeah. said earlier, make sure you talk to the right people. How long did that process take from there? It took about eight months. Right. Yeah, we we started off in the in the second half of two thousand and five, and. There's a little nuance here. We knew that the business that, that we were buying from was going to split into two parts. And we knew that we were going to be attached to one of those parts and we would be sold with that business. But we also knew, we thought, this was, we thought, thinking this through, the business wasn't doing too well at the high level stage then. And we thought to do this splitting apart would cost them a chunk of money. And we thought, where are they going to get that money from? So what we said is, well, why don't you sell us and use this proceeds of the sale to fund the big deal that you're doing? And in selling us, we are so inconsequential to the half of the business that we're currently in that we're not going to detract from the value of the business. So you effectively don't lose any value and you get free money to execute the transaction. So that was the story we told to the chief financial officer. And he said, that's clever. I like that. I like the way you're thinking, guys. So... Um, we said, right, that's fine. He says, however, he says, we need to get this deal done. And we start on May next year. And we said, oh, that's fine. That's, that's way in the future. Don't worry about it. We can, get, we can get this deal over the line before then. So the 1st of May 2006 was our kind of deadline. And uh, we got over the line at 10 minutes to midnight on the 30th of April that year by the skin of our teeth. And of course, the lawyers who'd done this before said, oh, this always happens. It always goes right to the wire and it always is a last minute thing. So there was, there was all sorts of journeys on the way about who was going to be the investors and what equity people were taking. And, and of course, the, the main investor, which was the, kind of the banking, they said, well, actually, what we need to do is we need to sell this story to a whole bunch of secondary investors. So I want you to come down to London and I want you to tell the story about the, the pine trees <laughs> to, to all these people in a big room in Bishopsgate in London. So I had about 120 people all closing their eyes, all smelling the pine and all walking through the forest. And uh, we got subscribed about eight times over. So we, wow. were able, we were able to syndicate the debt of the business quite readily, which was another vote of confidence that the market actually saw the potential. That's brilliant. All right, so we're going back to components there about, about the story. Yeah. Right? So you're talking there about engaging the senses. Yeah. Well, so, and, and you were, as always, fantastic setting that scene. I'm sure most of the listeners were always, and some of them are probably still in the woods right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's some key components there. Maybe you could just talk through that a little yeah. bit. So if we go back to the, 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 the building block there of a story, when we look at it, and if we look at the, the various, um, you know, I, I tried to find out, is there a, a, a manual for, for doing stories and business presentations? So I started to look at structures and I went back to look at the hero's journey by Joseph Campbell, you know, and all the the kind of stuff that J.K. Rowling and Star Wars and that have all been based upon. I thought it's great, but it's it's fine for a a feature film or it's fine for a novel, but for a two minute story in a business presentation, it's a bit complicated. So I began to boil it down further. I looked at the... Yeah, there's various studies being done about um, what are the different plot types and of course it turns out some of the plot types are a bit more complicated than others and the simplest one is the kind of person in a hole type plot where somebody faces an unexpected difficulty, struggles to overcome it and then realises something about themselves as a result of the journey. Um, and then I kept studying this and I boiled it down and I, and I found the, the, the format that Pixar use. And the Pixar have got a seven question kind of thing that they apply to every scene in the film and each episode of the film and the whole film itself. So they, they'll ask the question like, um, you know, once upon a time there was, every day he or she did, until one day something happens. And because of this, and they struggled and, 
Uh, and until one day something happened to resolve the struggle, and ever since then. Now, the problem I've got with this, all this language is about fantasy and about fiction and about childhood entertainment and things like that. I'm thinking, I need to translate this into a business context because what they've got in here is really special, but nobody's really translated into business. So I turned that back round, did a few experiments to see whether it worked and realized I need to simplify it further and came back with a very simple kind of recipe for a simple business story, which is people need to know the setting because otherwise you know what you're talking about. If they don't, it's difficult for them to engage in what you're about to tell them. So the setting is typically, you know, it was the 15th of March, 2006. I'm sitting eating my breakfast when this happened. Okay, I get the setting. Then there needs to be some challenge or question or activity or event that upsets the norm. And that's, we call it the turning point. So there needs to be a turning point there and then after the turning point, there needs to be some sort of struggle or challenge or drama so that it doesn't sound too easy, it doesn't sound too simple, otherwise it's boring and it's not memorable. So I've got to tell you about the things that went wrong and the challenges we faced and that struggle is an important middle component of the story and that goes until something eventually brings that struggle to an end, either positively or negatively, and that's the resolution. And the final part is, so what's the takeaway message from the story, the implication? And if I add the, the kind of the titles of those five parts together, I get S for setting, T for turning point, O for, o for overcoming struggle, R for resolution, and I for implication, it's story, S-T-O-R-I. So we said, look, there's the basic ingredients of a story, but it's a true business story based on real events in the business. But if you lay them out in that way, it's going to help the story to flow. It's going to help it to be memorable. But we realised there's more to it than that. So we went back to the published studies. We looked at the, the whole theory of narrative transportation theory, which a number of academics around the world have studied in different ways. We looked at all the studies about the, the effectiveness of story versus non-narrative ways of communication. We looked at the psychological impact of stories and we said, yeah, we've got the ingredients, but we've not got the recipe yet. So we went back and said, what are the things we need from the recipe? And we said, right, this is, this is going to boil it down to simple matters. Is, for instance, for me to engage in a story, I need to believe it to be true. Because if I think it's made up, I'm just going to attribute it to being, it's just nonsense, it's advertising, it's marketing, it's all that kind of stuff. It's been written by an agency because it's bland and it sounds a bit incredible. So to make it believable, we think it requires certain elements. So I need enough detail for me to actually be able to locate it. So don't tell me, oh, once upon a time I dealt with a customer and he thought we were brilliant. Because I'm thinking, well, you didn't tell me their name. You didn't tell me where they were. You didn't tell me when this happened. Therefore, I'm going to assume that it's just made up. So I need detail, dialogue, if there's characters in the story. And I want enough description so that I can picture what's going on inside my head when you're telling me the story. Hence. The olfactory senses and the tactility and all the kind of things about walking through pine forests, etc. So I want I want that kind of uh, level of detail in there as well. That brings it and makes it sound believable. Next thing I do from an emotional point of view is I need some empathy. I need to care. And why would I care about a story? So if I tell you a story about my business and I say we're fantastic, every time we face a challenge, we're just brilliant. We overcome it. You're going to say, well, bully for you. There's no empathy. We empathize with people who struggle. We empathize with underdogs. We empathize with people who have got weaknesses and imperfections and vulnerability, vulnerabilities. So we need some sense of empathy in the story as to why would I care about you? And often when we're working with people, say, you've got a great story, but you're hiding it behind this business facade. Show us the struggle behind the scenes and get us on your side. And all of a sudden, we're more likely to come and help you, including investing in you. And the final point is make me remember. So how are you going to make me remember the story? Well, at the start of the story, get me intrigued. Make me fascinated about where it's going. The middle of the story, give me some drama so that I'm thinking, so what happened next? Go on, tell me what happened next. And at the end of the story, give me a little bit of surprise, a little bit of a twist. So when I was talking to you a few minutes ago about pine trees and that, I didn't start off with the numbers. I deliberately kept the numbers to the end because I know that the numbers are big enough to be quite surprising for people. 
So I, I don't mention the phrase $280 million until the end of that story, because I know that that's the shock factor, and it's that shock factor that makes the story memorable. Yeah. So that's the kind of simple ingredients for the story and the simple structure for the story. And there's actually five parts of the ingredients and five parts of the structure. It's so simple. But when you apply it in a business context, it gives people the freedom to be creative and it gives them the freedom to tell people who they are, what they stand for, what they're good at. They can show people what they do rather than tell people what they do by telling a story about what they've done for somebody else. So it's a fantastically powerful way of communicating with other human beings because we use stories all the time. So it's not, it's not for the pitch. It's in every day-to-day activities. And you said earlier on, leading a very large organization. Yeah. It really helps being able to, whilst yeah. you're not able to see all those people, and, and you know, there's not many listeners, I think, with that size of organization, to be fair. But without being able to see all those people, you can still connect with them at a deeper level because you're having those, those Definitely, and, and And where it meant for me is, if I was going to an office that I'd never set foot in before, I was often greeted by people who said, Bob, you're back. I'm saying, but I've never been here before. They said, but it feels like you have because we hear your voice every week. We read your messages every week. Um, we hear you on telephone calls all the time. We know what you sound like. We know what you look like. You kind of, we know what your sense of humour is, all that kind of stuff. But, but let, let me take you back just a second there, Jerry. You say it's not for the pitch. No, no. The story is a building block that can be part of the pitch. Yeah. So it's a fantastic way to open a pitch is to start with a story that relates to the rest of the pitch. It's a fantastic way. Rather than say, we have done great work for people just like you, you say, actually, it was this time last year in Dundee, we were faced with a really challenging problem. A piece of steel had just fallen and half the building had collapsed. And we're thinking, oh no, we've just invested a lot of money in this and it's a pile, of, literally a pile of rubble. So what we did is, and you tell people, we overcame the struggle. So you, by telling the story, you show them what you can do rather than telling them what you can do. Yeah. And because you're telling a story and you're getting people to imagine it in their heads, you don't need to have lots of fancy PowerPoint slides to accompany it. In fact, you don't want pictures to accompany it because you want people to imagine it in their head because they're far more sophisticated than trying to show them random pictures. So the, 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 the building block of a story can fit into the structure of a pitch just as easily as it can fit into the structure for a, a communication with staff or a, a conference talk or a TEDx talk, whatever, yeah. Fantastic. Right, well, I'm, I'm close to time, so I want to just get down into a little bit more about operations and delivery, right? Mm-hmm. So over the, over the piece, uh, Bob, there's a couple of stories that I, I've observed you talking at a few different things, right? And I, and I think to myself, do you know what? There's clearly, and you said it yourself, there's clearly much more practice, thought process behind just putting a couple of stories together. You, you have, it seems to me you've got a go-to place in your mind where you have a certain number of stories that will help, and, and forgive me for saying this, but that, that you could pull out yeah. and use when appropriate. Yeah. So just, first Guilty. question is, Say that again, sorry. I'm guilty. You're guilty as charged, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you devise work on a new story, because it's not just something that comes to you, you know, I, I know that you practice on it, and maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and, yeah. the, and, the, and the work that it takes. Yeah. And and we haven't discussed this yet, but I know that you like to use props as well. Yeah, 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 we can bring that in. But, okay, so, so take that first one first, Jerry, is that the, the, the idea of having a collection of stories that you can go to, for me, it's building a bank of assets. Yeah. The problem with most people's stories, they're half-formed and never articulated. And when you try to come out with them in the heat of the moment, you, you miss out the detail, you miss out the drama, and it kind of sounds like a, a half anecdote. So w- what I, I do regularly is I have an ongoing list of stories that I'm going to draft. But here's the thing, we're talking about stories that are typically told in one or two minutes. So if I'm talking for one or two minutes, how many words do I need? How, how quickly do you speak, Jerry, when you're speaking in front of people? How many words a minute? I'm trying to think that out. Probably about 150? Yeah, probably a bit, bit quicker than that. You know, most of us speak about 170 words a minute. Okay. So if I'm going to do a two-minute story, I only need 340 words. It fits on a page. Yeah. 
So most of the stories I'm talking about are one-pagers. I'm not talking about writing novels or scripts. And because it's a one-pager, I don't have to worry about complexities like characters and subplots <laughs> and, and, uh, and development arcs. I just need to think about what's the setting, what's the turning point, where's the struggle, where's the resolution of this, and what was the takeaway message? So I can think about it in these simple terms. So I harvest stories. And I harvest stories from my own experiences. I harvest stories from other people's experiences. And I always harvest stories from further afield because I know that if I can collect analogies, then analogies can sometimes help to illustrate a, a point in a business talk in a way that gets people to understand it. So, for instance, if I was doing a talk and I wanted to show people how solving a small problem can have a big impact, I might go back to 1958 in Stockholm when two carpenters are trying to get a table in the back of a van. They prided themselves on delivery and they needed to get this delivered that day and the table was too big for the van. So they thought, what are we going to do here? They thought, right, we're going to have to hire a van. We've got no time to hire a bigger van. See, this is the struggle about the story. Yeah. Um, and then they said, well, no, we're going we're to have to physically cut the roof off the van, which would be horrendous. But they didn't want to, to let their customer down. And then one of them, a guy called Ingvard Kampard, said, why don't we just unscrew the legs of the table and supply the legs separately with instructions on how to fit them? And they looked at each other and said, hang on a minute, if we do that, we can put four tables in the van. Uh-huh. And if we do that, we don't have to actually, it reduces our manufacturing costs because we don't have to do the final assembly. Wow. So Ingvard Kampard is the IK from Ikea. Yeah. And that's where it started. Trying to solve one problem ended up with Ingvard Kampard becoming the 12th richest man on the planet and Ikea being one of the most successful international businesses. So I would take that story yep. and put it in my library. Now, I'd love to think my library is all in here, but it's not. It's not. I've got a library, a growing library of stories that I can go to and I can pick them up and I can use them and I can put them down. So I've got stories about history, about technology, about science, about art, uh, about politics, whatever, that I know there's a message in there that I can relate into business. So I write the stories down, put them in my library, and if I need them, I can go back to them, I can pull them out. And the advantage nowadays, I can access my library from my iPad, from my mobile phone, from my desktop, whatever, refresh myself on a couple of details, and then tell the story as if somehow I know the complete history of something, but I don't. I'm actually just picking out a story that, that serves the purpose for the talk. So I do try and encourage people to curate and share the stories within their organization, because these are gold nuggets when it comes to persuading staff, customers, investors to support you. And if you don't capture them, they end up just being half-told anecdotes over a coffee somewhere, rather than something that actually is going to drive your business forward. So it's very deliberate. And, and it's also not an endless repertoire, but nope. there is a repertoire there. Um, but, but it yeah. is deliberate store. I mean, that, that's been really interesting. It's a question I've not asked you before. It's to, to, to that level of detail. But, but I'll, I'll give you an illustration, Jerry. you know, where it comes from. So it, it was in the news last week about the lady from Perth who was uh, a, a fantastic sense of smell and she smelt the fact that her husband was suffering from Parkinson's disease long before he was diagnosed. And it turns out she was able to detect a, a unique smell from people suffering from Parkinson's that's opened up a whole new line of inquiry into early diagnosis and potential treatment, etc. Uh, and that's a fantastic story. So I've written it on my list of stories that need to be need to be written down. So I know I'll go and turn that into a one-page story, and at some point I will turn that into a story over the next couple of weeks that will allow me to say, sometimes people have got exceptional abilities that we don't recognize at the time, or sometimes we don't understand the science behind something until the science catches up. Yeah. There's different potential there is, yeah. outcomes from this, but I will capture that as a, as a kind of typically a one-page story, maybe one-and-a-half-page story, that at some point you'll hear me talking about that at a conference as if I know it back to front, inside out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, pulling it back to um, the audience, pitching for money, 
One of the things that can be really tricky is controlling your emotions. This is the last thing I just want to quickly touch yep. on. How do people try not to come across too needy? How can you control your emotions? Yeah, it, it, it's funny because we talk to people about how they present themselves. If people are presenting material of which they've got a strong emotional connection, it can be daunting because our reactions ourselves when we're standing in front of people, we become emotional. Therefore, sometimes it's difficult to control our own emotions. And also we, we, we react emotionally to people asking us questions and potentially challenging us. And sometimes that can be positive, but often it can be can come across as being defensive or evasive or hostile. So practice, practice, practice. So what we do to people is never stand up to give a really emotional talk in front of the live audience for the first time ever. So always practice in front of other human beings several times so you get used to your own reaction to your own words. So that allows you to deal with your own emotions so that you can talk about. So this week, for instance, I've been dealing with people that have been talking about all sorts of personal issues from being physically abused as, as children, through to challenges of autism, through to various challenges of not feeling worthy, through to people potentially thinking that they didn't want to go on living. And this is part of, of us training people to do public speaking. It's nothing to do with Samaritans or anything like this. And giving people the confidence to be able to talk about these things in a safe environment but in front of other human beings gives them the practice to be able to do that so that when they do come to speak about it in front of a live audience, they know exactly what they're going to say. They know the points where people are going to draw breath. They know people are going to laugh at some parts and cry at other parts. The second part of how do you react to other people's without getting emotional practice, practice, practice. So when I, when I went on and sold PSN into Wood Group in 2011, I then took over as CEO of the combined businesses. Part of my job was every six months, I had to go out of London and declare the results to the city. And after that, I would get questions from analysts and from stockbrokers and from journalists. So before we did that, each time we'd go and do question training. So we would spend two or three hours the afternoon before, typically, and it was typically, I think it was a, it was a Tuesday where we do the announce, announcements. So it was a, a Monday afternoon in London, in a room, people firing really awkward, difficult questions at us. And we had to practice being calm, receiving the information, thinking about it, being grateful for it, and then answering it in whatever the most appropriate way was. And sometimes during the practice session, you had to say, whoa, 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 I have no clue how to answer that. <laughs> and I'm already getting angry at the thought that somebody might ask that. So how do I, you know, give me some tips, give me, train me on how to answer that. So we would practice the answers. And then we'll get the questions again and we practice the answers. So I say to people, if you're going to a pitch, don't just practice the pitch. Predict, prepare and practice all the potential questions that you might get. The real hard ones about, so your investment doesn't look as attractive as the other ones I've looked at. Why are you so expensive? Why is your product not so good? You know, be willing to answer all these. And of course, one of the best ways to answer them is to turn it around and say, well, let me tell you about a time when that came up recently. Ah, a story. <laughs> yeah, because that way you'll remember it easier yourself and you'll be able to convey it back and, and, and it, it kind of diffuses it. It's no longer you, your opinion versus my opinion. It's about the situation and the concern you've got. So let me tell you a story about that concern and let's treat this rationally and let's take the emotion out of this situation and keep it business-like so that I don't get defensive and you don't get aggressive. Fantastic. And it's interesting you talk about emotion and being aware of it because I guess what you don't want to do is do a presentation when you don't appear to have any emotion. You want to be able to show it, but you don't want to leak it all over the place. So it's quite a difficult yeah. balance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, that comes down to rehearsal in front of people. And, and you might think that you're presenting in a way that's really engaging and emotional. If the audience don't see it that way, then you, you need to take that on board and change it. If the audience think that you're, uh, you're way over the top and too flamboyant and distracting, and you need to calm it down, then you need to listen to that. Although I would think for most of us, that's not an issue. Most of us is the other way about. We're not putting enough energy into how we present rather than having too much. 
So audience feedback is essential to get that balance right of having a real emotional connection in what you're doing, but not to the point of it distracting from the core business message that you're trying to give. Brilliant. Well, um, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Uh, I'm just going to end on my own little story then. So a few years ago, I think it was probably actually around about, you'll be able to correct me on this, but it was probably, it was pre-crisis, so probably 2008, seven, somewhere around about that. And we both belonged to an organization called the Entrepreneur Exchange. Yep. And every year, we go up to the beautiful hotel Glenegans up in Perthshire. It always amazes me how that hotel is in, in the middle of nowhere, middle of God's country. Beautiful, beautiful location. And they always serve fantastic food. Yeah. And we're in the Strathairn restaurant, which is, um, for those who haven't been there, it's Art Deco, beautiful restaurant, lovely views this surrounding us. And the food is fantastic. Yeah, it's really good. And, and at that event, there'll be many, stellar and top performing people and business leaders coming along either talking or just coming to listen and at the time you were chairman yeah and one lunch um you could have sat down at any table but you chose deliberately to sit down at a table with fresh-faced unknown entrepreneurs yeah and i was on that table and i still remember the impact it had and the conversation that we had and you taking the time and deciding right I think there was 500 people at these events, something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, and you decided to sit at this table, which I just thought was awesome. So thanks for sitting with me on that day. And thanks for sitting with me again today and for sharing your wisdom with um, one or two maybe fresh-faced entrepreneurs that are listening to this podcast. It's been awesome and a total pleasure. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Bob Keeler, CBE. Yep, he has one of those too. I forgot to mention that earlier on. Now you can see why I was so keen to get Bob onto this podcast. I hope you really enjoyed the episode and you feel inspired to bring authentic storytelling into your business life. And of course, you've got the patience and the diligence you're going to need to craft some of those stories and the confidence to weave them into your finance raising, your planning applications and of course, just general business conversations with those people that you need to bring along with you to build a stronger and better business. I know I've made an assumption that it was valuable to you, but perhaps you could let me know. I hope it was. But leave us a review of the podcast, spread the word by sharing it, or simply drop a line and say how the episode or indeed any other episodes have impacted your decision-making process. Any feedback is most welcome. It's easy to subscribe, by the way. If you haven't, make sure that you do so so you don't miss out on any future episodes. This has been awesome. I'm ready to climb the next mountain. I hope you are too. Until the next time, have fun out there and make sure you get in the swim. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the content delivered on the CPI podcast. Even though it's free to listen to, it actually takes quite a bit of time and financial commitment to deliver each and every episode. Did you know that by leaving a positive written review, you, yes, you, will have a direct impact on the visibility of the podcast? And that's really important because by reaching a wider audience, it helps our team to continually improve the overall content that we deliver to you week after week. For some of you, leaving a review will be second nature, but for others, it might be your first one. Open your podcast app, pick the CPI podcast and search for previous reviews. And on iTunes in particular, click to look at all of the reviews and then you'll see an option to leave a written review. Go on, it'll only take two minutes and it'll really make our day. And we genuinely read every single one of them.